So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever had the experience of maybe getting freaked out or almost to the degree that you felt like a gut punch because you had lost something of such immense value or maybe a someone that you dearly loved and you didn't know where it was or they were? So um, years ago, our family lived in Seal Beach and... um, and there was this one day where my children were all, um, we had, at that time, we had three children under the age of six. And we were doing a, uh, a bathroom renovation in our house. And uh, actually, Pastor Robert was over helping me out because Robert knows how to do stuff, and I don't know how to do stuff. And so Robert was renovating my bathroom, and I was watching, and, um, but pretending to be working. And... And he had brought his, uh, his daughter, Chloe, over, and I think she was five or six at the time. And, um, and, and about halfway in the middle of the project, Alicia, my wife, walked in and she said, hey, have you guys seen Lucy? So Lucy was, at the time, our youngest. She was two or three years old. And we looked at her like, no, we haven't seen her. We're just working in here. And uh, she's like, well, I, I, can't, I can't find her. And so uh, we both got up and we started looking around, you know, the house and then over the backyard. And, um, and we started to get really freaked out because she was nowhere to be found. And so we, we did what you do. And we went to the neighbors and we said, hey, we can't find uh, Lucy. Can you guys come out and help us? And so they came out and started looking around. And Robert and I got in the truck and we started to drive around the neighborhood. I called the police and I was just terrified. And Alicia was terrified. And, um, and so Alicia frantically was, was walking up the stairs and my, my daughter, Audrey, who was six years old at the time, she said, mommy, mommy, what's the matter? What's the matter? She said, we can't find Lucy. We can't find Lucy. And Audrey said, mom, uh, you put her down for a nap in the closet. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> hey, we had, we had three kids under six, you know I mean? You, but have you ever had that experience where you, you felt like you lost something or someone and you were just terrified? You know, we began a, a series a while back entitled Stories Along the Way, and we're looking together at stories that Jesus told on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he's on the road to the cross and he delivers to his disciples this series of parables, these subversive, arresting, compelling stories in order to shape them and us as disciples of Jesus. And these stories, they get into your heart and into your imagination, and they begin to expand your view of God and of his kingdom. And today we're going to look at another of the stories that Jesus tells, and this one is a story about something that is valuable that was lost. And it's a story about, uh, you know, in one case, it's a a shepherd on a frantic search for a sheep, a a woman on a frantic search for a coin, and a father with a, a frantic search for a son. And so I want to invite you to enter into the, the story. And today we're going to be focused really on the third of the, the kind of like stories about uh, the search for something that's lost. It's a story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And this story is among the most popular and among the most influential stories that Jesus tells. In fact, um, it, it is not too much to say that this story is in many ways what was so polarizing about Jesus. In fact, this story, I think you could say, uh, we discover what caused so many people to love him and also hate him. 
fact, you could say that the story that Jesus tells is ultimately the, the vision that he gives us of God and of humanity. The, the vision Jesus gives us in the story is ultimately what gets him put to death. And this story has changed countless people's lives. This story has changed how I think about Christianity and a church that understands this story will live radically differently. And so I wanna invite you to enter into this story. Now, let's begin though by, by, by looking at it in its context because the context is incredibly important. You know, we've seen that oftentimes there's some question, some incident, some, some, something that's happening that prompts Jesus to tell his stories. Now, what is it that prompts Jesus to tell this story? Well, Jesus tells us in uh, chapter 15, verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. It, it says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now, the tax collectors were so bad that they were in a separate class of sinners. It wasn't just the sinners, including tax. No, it was the tax collectors and sinners. And it was such that, you know, if, if you were, a, you know, a teenager growing up, you know, and your parents were like, you know, you're never going to amount to anything, kid. You know, and you're like, well, at least I'm not going to be a tax collector, you know? <laughs> And it was that sort of thing. I mean, you just, you didn't like the tax collectors, you know, and the sinners, and these were the, the, the ones who were distant from God, and they were hopelessly separated from God. They were the unclean people in the neighborhood. And it is these people, the tax collectors and sinners that were gathered here around Jesus. You know, it was Father Gregory Boyle, you know, the founder of Homeboy Industries down in uh, downtown Los Angeles, who works with the gang members in that lovely book of his called Tattoos on the Heart that, that, said, that said this. He said, the strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues. The strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues, but rather in standing in the right place. And here Jesus is standing in the right place. He is standing right amidst the tax collectors and the sinners. And they're all gathered around Jesus. And isn't that interesting? You know, the people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And they were liked by Jesus. The people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And they were liked by Jesus. And I just wonder, is that... Is that the church? Could, could we say that about the church? Are the people who, who like us and, and who feel liked by us, oftentimes the people who are far from God, they were, they were nothing like Jesus, and yet Jesus liked them and was right there with them. But of course, they're not the only ones who are standing with Jesus on the stand. It's not just the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, also, it, says that, or it also says that the Pharisees and the scribes were there, and they were grumbling. Uh, Luke uses a really interesting word. I think in the NIV, it's translated, and they were muttering, which is just a great word. We should bring that word back. They were muttering. They were grumbling. And uh, what were they grumbling? Well, here's what they, they were grumbling about. They were saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. It's as if they're saying, look, if he were from God, then he would avoid them like we avoid them. 
he obviously has watered down the Torah and he's not teaching it straight because if he were teaching it straight, they would feel condemned by Jesus just like they feel condemned by us. So obviously uh, he's, he's, he's guilty by association. Listen, if Jesus was concerned about guilt by association, he would have stayed in heaven, <laughs> but he didn't. And so they're, they're grumbling and they're muttering, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Jesus tells three parables to set them and us straight. He, he tells these three parables to set them and us straight about what it means to be lost and what about what it means to be found. And uh, he, he tells stories about things that were lost. And I, I love this. Can I just say in passing, I love that Jesus tells parables about things that get lost because I am one of those people who loses things all the time. I lose my phone, I lose my wallet, I lose my keys, I lose my phone charger, I lose my ear pods, I lose you know, my earphones. And uh, Alicia said, you know, the problem, the worst thing about you losing so many things is that you go and you take my things. <laughs> and she, she carefully puts her things and she takes, and I lose it and then I take her. Anybody in the house loses things? Anyway, Jesus tells you a story. I had well, this is just in passing. But um, <laughs> several years ago, we were in Albuquerque, and we were getting ready to go on a long trip from Albuquerque to Long Beach. And we did this drive a lot. And it was about two hours before we were about ready to leave. And, and I could not find my wallet. And I was like, I was going to be gone for over a week. I was going to be driving. I needed my driver's license and my credit cards and the wallet. And I, I couldn't find it anywhere. And I am just freaking out. I can't find my wallet. And you know, the, like some of you are like the anxiety, like, where is it? I can't find it. You're looking over. And, and I couldn't find it. We just had to leave without my wallet. And uh, so a week and a half later, we come back and... Um, and uh, still, my wallet is nowhere to be found. And then um, I always take a while before I go and try to order new credit cards because I know I just, nobody stole it. Like, it's not their fault. It's my fault. I lost it. And, um, and one day we opened up the freezer and the wallet was inside the freezer in a bag with the batteries. You're like, well, why do you have batteries? Well, I, in my wife's home growing up, they put batteries in the freezer because... I, I guess it's a thing. Anyway, the wallet was, I don't know how it got, to this day, I have no recollection. Anyway, Jesus, that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to share that. I needed to get it. Yes. Preaching is, is part therapy. <laughs> but the, the first story Jesus tells is uh, about 100 sheep and one gets lost. I love this. Uh, I have a couple of pieces from this artist. It's, uh, it's an Argentinian artist called uh, Jorge Coco. And uh, we had one of his pieces in our Good Friday walkthrough, and I found these, and they're really cool. But the first story, there's 100 sheep. One is lost, and the shepherd goes and looks for the lost sheep, and he finds it, and he brings it back home, and he calls his family and friends together, and they rejoice. And then um, the next uh, story is about a woman, uh, this time not about 100, but about 10, and one is lost one out of 10, and the woman looks for it and she finds it and she calls her friends and her families together to rejoice with her. And of course, the point that Jesus is making is clear. You know, um, when you lose something important, you know, and of course, in these stories, we're like, well, I, you know, a coin, you know, and a, we don't really relate to sheep 
Most of us, if we had 100 sheep, we wouldn't know what to do with them in the first place. And like, if I lost one, I mean, so I still got 99, you know? So don't, don't think coins and sheep. Think credit cards and children. And listen, when you lose something important, you know, you don't, you don't say to yourself, well, I still got, you know, I lost my visa, but I still got my MasterCard. You know, I lost my eight-year-old, but I still got my five-year-old. You know, said, <laughs> said no one. You know, no one's ever said that. The thing is, is you don't console yourself by what's lo- with what's lost by what's found. You go frantically, diligently searching for that which is lost. And Jesus is telling us about the heart of God. Jesus has come to reveal to us what God is like. And God is like this. He is like a shepherd on a desperate search for a lost sheep. God is like a woman on a desperate search for a silver corn. God has a heart that is searching for that which is lost. And now Jesus tells a third story about a father on a search for a lost son. And it begins like this. There's a wealthy man who has two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, so, so there's a wealthy man, and we know he's wealthy because in the story, he's got lots of land. He's got uh, cattle and calves and things like this. And in the ancient world, everyone's like, oh, this is a rich man. And he's got two sons. And the younger of the two sons is just waiting on his dad to die so that he can get his inheritance. And the dad can't die soon enough. And he, he just keeps getting older and he keeps living on. And he's just like, dad, I wish you could die so that I could get my share of the inheritance. And so finally he loses patience and he says, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now this was not any more acceptable or familiar of a practice then than it would be today. This would be weird. You'd essentially be saying, look, dad, I wish you were dead. So pretty much act like you're dead. Sell off your hard-earned land and resources and give me my share of the inheritance. Now, when, when Jesus begins to tell this story and he puts it like this, everyone in the audience, I mean, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the tax collectors and the sinners, they've never agreed on anything, but they all agree on this. This boy, this boy, he should be driven out of the village with violent blows. Uh, he should, we should take him out and stone him. No, this is unheard of. The audacity, the disrespect, the insensitivity, the shame that he would bring upon himself and upon his, his community with this kind of ask. And The only thing more unheard of and shocking in the story than the ask of the son is the response of the father. The father goes through with it. And he divided his property between them. And everyone in the crowd is asking, what? Like, like they're all like, what? Why? Why? Why would anyone do this? And it's because this man's son is already lost from him and he knows it. And he will do anything to get him back. And sometimes if you want a son or daughter back, sometimes the only thing and the best thing you can do is to let them go. And so this father, he bears in his own soul the pain and the agony of doing the hard thing and he lets 
the son go because he knows that love that is, that is coerced or manipulated is not true love. To be true love, it needs to be freely chosen. And so the father lets the son freely go so that maybe perhaps he might freely choose to come back and the son goes. And he takes the money and he runs. You know, the Steve Miller band, you know, go on, take the money and... This is a story about... But he takes the money, he runs, and he quickly burns through the money that his father has spent a lifetime accruing. And eventually, he's broke. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So this son, the audacity, the disrespect, asking for his father's, he takes it, and then he goes and he burns through all of it in self-indulgent, self-centered living, totally irresponsible. Prostitutes, uh, partying, uh, drugs, who knows? He's just out there, and, and before he knows it, it's all gone, and then there's a famine, and then there's no food anywhere, and if you don't have it, you can't get it, and so this, this famine is so bad that he's got to now, that this boy who's been self-indulgent, who's been entitled his whole life now, he has nothing, and now he's got to get a, 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 a j, j, job. <laughs> Never had a job. And the only job he can get is as a pig farmer, which for a young Jewish boy, that is the heights of uncleanness. And he is so hungry that he longs to fill his belly with the, the pods that the, the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything to eat. No one gave him anything to eat. And now at this point, everyone in the audience, they are all feeling together uh, this, this German word called schadenfreude. Have you heard of schadenfreude? You may have not heard the word, but you know the feeling. Schadenfreude is the pleasure and joy and satisfaction that comes from learning or witnessing the troubles, the failures, or the humiliation of others. Now, you may not have known the word, but you know that feeling. They got what was coming to them, and you're like, yes. <laughs> and the audience is like, yes. You reap what you sow. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh destruction. Ha! He's getting what's coming to him. And everyone at this point, they're all just kind of, they're, they're liking the story. And uh, they, the punk kid comes and he's partying, he's bold, and he's arrogant, and there's no humility, and now he is humbled. And he's in the pigsty. And he's got nothing. But then one day, he comes back to himself. He came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I know. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. So he wakes up and he's just like, what in the world? He thinks, what am I doing? And some of you have been there. You just think, whose story am I living anyway? How did I get here? 
And maybe for some of you, the reason why you're at church today is because you reached that point and maybe somebody invited you to church or maybe you just stumbled into church, but you don't, you're just searching and you're, this is the son. He's lost. And uh, he has this conversation with himself and he's like, I, I know I'll go back and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll not even go in as a, as a servant on the household. I'll be a hired servant which meant that he could generate some income. He wouldn't live on the estate. He would generate some income so that perhaps he could pay the father back. And he's, he's working on the speech. And you know when you gotta have that hard conversation? Maybe with somebody you hurt, you've got to own your junk and your garbage and you've been kind of rehearsing it in your head. And, and he's, he's working on the speech and he's thinking about it all, all the way all the way back home, and, he, and he's looking down, and I just imagine him walking on this road. He's probably walking slow because he, he, he's afraid of what might happen. You know, when you get to the village, it would be customary. You know, Ken Bailey is a commentator on this text, and he knows the, the world of the, the, the Middle East very, very well. And he says, you know, in these ancient societies and cultures, if you had shamed the village and the family the way this son had shamed the village and family, it would be customary as you're coming back for the whole village to come out and to shame you. And they had this, this practice of taking a pot and throwing it down on the ground in front of you to say, this is what you have done to your reputation and to the reputation of your family and to the reputation of this whole village. You're nothing. And he's walking back, he's afraid, and then... The complete unexpected happened. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. You know, in the ancient, in the ancient world, a patriarch like this wealthy patriarch would never run. It was beneath his dignity. Running was something the children did or the youth did, but not this father. This father runs, why? Maybe to beat the village to the son. But he gets there and he embraces him, throws his arms around him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he, he goes into his speech and the father just says, shh, shh, shh. He says, put the best robe on him. I'm restoring my, him to sonship. And he says, put on his finger my ring because he is my son. And put sandals on his feet because he's not a servant. This is a part of the family. And here's how I respond. Here's, just think like, I mean, shouldn't we wait a bit? I mean, Dad, aren't you just kind of having an emotional response to this son? I mean, let's, let's, wait, let's wait at least a couple weeks and see if his repentance is honest. Maybe a couple, three, four weeks before we give him the robe and the rings and the sandals, you know, let him wear some bare feet for a while. Let him feel the pain of what he has done. But the father's like, no, we're not going to wait. This is not about behavior modification. This is about the restoration of relationship. 
He says, verse 24, don't you understand? This son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he's now found. And so we have got to get the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And they began to celebrate. And they have this party over the sun. Now, the strange thing is, is the story could have ended right there. It could have ended right there, but it, it strangely, it doesn't end there. Because there's another character in the story. It turns out there's another son in the story. It turns out there's a second lost son in the story. It turns out that this isn't the story of one lost son. This is a story of two lost sons. And there's an older son. And, and this was the son who was well-behaved. He's the firstborn. He got it right, he worked hard, he stayed out of trouble, he's always made dad proud, and uh, he said, do it by the book, older brother. Some of you are that older brother. And he's out doing in the field, doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's probably got to work harder to make up for what this other stupid son lost. And he came and he drew near the house and he hears this music and dancing. He calls one of his servants and he asks him what these thing, things meant. And he said, uh, the, the, son, the, the servant comes and he says, well, I have some good news and I have some bad news and they're both the same news. <laughs> your brother is back. He's back. And your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother is furious. Of course he's furious. I mean, you're, you're, he's, he's going to come back and you're just, you're going you're gonna to kill the fattened calf for him? I mean, I've been working so hard. What about me? And as the dad approaches him, the younger brother now has been rehearsing a speech of his own. And his father came out and entreated him. His father comes in with this heart of compassion. He is compassionate toward the younger son and he is compassionate toward the older son. But as the older son answered his father, and he doesn't say father, he says, look. Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But within, with, when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he's out there with whores and drinking and sexing and drugging, you killed the fatted calf for him. I mean, seriously, all of these years after all I've done and you're gonna do this, like that's just not fair. To which Jesus might respond, who said anything about fair? This is a story not about fairness, and it's not about behavior modification. This is a story about the infinite grace of God. And so Jesus puts these words in the father's mouth. He said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. So there's other calves, and they're yours. There's other robes, and they're yours. There's other rings, they're yours. Son, all I have is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, 
This your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and now he is found. He said, we had to celebrate. You want to know what you really think is important? What makes you celebrate? What is it that is important to this father? It is a restored relationship with the son. And then strangely, you know, like, like we're wondering like, well, what happens next? Does the son go back into the party? Is the family reunited? Is the, 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 the older brother and the father, is their relationship restored? And um, we don't know. It ends on a cliffhanger. Maybe Jesus left the story open-ended because he wants us to see ourselves in this story. And I think what Jesus wants to do with this story is, I think Jesus wants to show us something profound about lostness and something about what it means to be found. And I think what Jesus wants us to see about being lost is this. There are two ways you can lose your way. There are two ways to be lost. There are two ways you can run from God. You know, the first way is the obvious way. You can run from God by being very, very naughty. You can be very, very bad. And some of you, you've been there. Some of you are there right now. And maybe something happened that triggered the response. Maybe you were hurt by somebody at church. Uh, maybe you, you experienced abuse by a religious authority. Maybe, maybe you just had intellectual questions or you didn't like the way the church was responding to uh, you know, marginalized people in our own culture. Maybe you were just cheesed off to the shallowness and the superficiality of evangelicalism or maybe the downfall of another celebrity pastor. Or maybe, there was, maybe you just wanted to go out and have fun and you just thought, you know, the, the, what I've been taught, you know, in church, it's just not fun. And so you went off and you did everything you shouldn't do and you got caught up in pills and another drink and sexing and, and, and self-indulgence and all manner of stuff that was just self-centered and you turned away from generosity, turned away from neighbor and it was all about me, self-discovery, I'm gonna find myself and you walked away from the wisdom and the beauty of life that we see in Jesus. And maybe like this prodigal son, for a little bit of time, you had fun. But then you hit the bottom. There came a point where it wasn't fun anymore. And maybe you've reached that point now. Maybe it's just not fun anymore. You ran, you've, you've lost yourself, and, and you've hit rock bottom. And, and, and we wouldn't know this from looking at you because it looks like you're fine. But you know, when you're in bed at night, you feel lost. You wonder, is there more? Because I have an ache of loneliness and, and I feel that something is missing. Is there meaning? Is there a way? I, I, this way of life is not cutting it. And the word to you from Jesus in this parable is come home. Get out of the pig pen and come back home. So Jesus, number one, is talking to us about 
one way of being lost. You can be lost like the younger brother. That's the traditional, that's the old school way of getting lost. But the other way of being lost in this parable, strangely, is not by being very, very bad. The second way of being lost in this parable is to be very, very good. Did you notice in the story, the older brother, why is he so angry? He is angry not, because, not, not in spite of how good he has been. He is angry because of how good he's been. All of these years, I have worked hard. I've kept my nose clean. I've made up for the loss that your younger son incurred. And he is angry, and he is full of disdain, and he is bitter, and he's on the, he's on the bitter train. And he's, 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 he's rehearsing in his mind, like, this isn't right. Not for somebody who's been as good as me and not for what they're doing and how they're acting and what's wrong. And listen, here is, here, here is the symptoms if you are a lost older brother. Disdain, contempt, bitterness, and you have a deeply critical attitude and you are unhappy. And friends, there's a lot of people in church who from the outside, they look good. According to Jesus, there's a lot of people in church who are like whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, they, they look beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They draw near to God with their mouth, but their heart is far from God because they are just deep down angry because of the injustice. It shouldn't happen this way for somebody who has been as good of a Christian as me. And maybe you're lost not in your badness or your wrongness. Maybe you're lost in your goodness and your rightness. You've got the right theology. You've got the right political ideology. And all of those other people out there, they are wrong. And what's wrong with them? And how could they? And those aren't my people. And I don't like those people. And Jesus in this story, do you see what he's doing? He drew us in with the parable of the younger son so that he might get to the older sons so that he might expose us and say, there is not one way of being lost. There's two ways of being lost. There's two ways you can run from God. You can run from God by being very, very bad, and you can run from God by being very, very good. But listen. Listen, the gospel is not religion or irreligion. The gospel is something totally, totally different. And you see how different it is. You see, it, it, it's not, it's not the, the older brother who stays home and is a good kid, and it's not the younger brother who goes off and loses his, himself in, in you know, partying and drinking and drugging. The gospel is about a life that is transformed by grace. It is about a heart that loves God and loves people because you have been so deeply loved by God that it overflows in love for people. Father Greg Boyle put it like this. He said, listen, he said, our best selves tell us that there but for the grace of God. That's what our best, there but for the grace of God, there go I. That's what you say in your best moments, that in the end, there is no distance really between us and them after all. It is just us. 
us who are lost, us who are broken, us who at the end of the day each has our own little pockets of dysfunction and sin and rebellion. There is just us. The God, our best and noble hope is to imitate the God we believe in, the God who has abundant room in God's grief and heart for us all. So this parable is first showing us that there are two ways you can be lost. But the second thing that this parable is showing us is that there is only one way of being found. You know, I want to invite our band up at this point. Jesus has come to reveal to us who God is. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you will ever hope to know and see. And what Jesus tells us about God is that God is like a father whose heart is aching for a lost child. What Jesus tells us about the father is that the father's heart is full of infinite love. And here is the way we human beings are found. And it is the only way we are found. And it is not because you came up with a plan of how you're going to make everything better for what you've done. And it's not because you took a long journey back home. The only way we can be found is through the love and the grace of God. Fun fact. So the the Greek word that's translated lost in this parable three or four times, it's uh, the Greek word apalumi. Can we just say that together? That word surfaces, it shows up in the most famous verse in the Bible. And that verse goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not be lost but have eternal life. It is the love of God that seeks out and finds lost people. There's a pastor I love named Tim Keller, and he he preaches a brilliant sermon on this text. It's been so influential to me. And uh, I've been channeling some of him to you today. You may not have known it. But he points out, he he says, you know, it's kind of interesting in this story. The younger brother has such a crummy older brother. You know, um, He's like, the older brother's just angry and he's bitter and he has everything. You know, the younger brother has nothing. He, has, he still has everything. The father says, all that I have belongs to you. And he's like, and, and yet the, 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 the younger brother, the older brother is just angry and he's nasty. And, and, and Keller asks, he says, why would Jesus put in the story such a nasty older brother? And of course, the answer is to expose Pharisees. But what would a true older brother have done? A true older brother would have seen the agony of the father.
and he would have determined to take a long journey into a far country. He would have sold a few fatted calves and sacrificed himself to pay for this journey, to chase after and to find his younger brother. I will pay for it and bring him home. And Keller says, you know, too bad he didn't have a a true older brother. But you do. Jesus Christ gives us a bad older brother so that we could seek a good one. We need an older brother who will not just take a long journey from a far town, but who will come from heaven to earth. We need a brother who will not just bear a financial burden, but who will bear the weight of sin. A brother who will not just expend and sacrifice some of his own stuff, but an older brother who will lay down and sacrifice his very life so that you and I can be brought home. And friends, we have that older brother. And so I just want to invite you today afresh. Come back home. Some of you, all of us, I mean, all of us knows what it's like to be a younger brother and an older brother. Sometime throughout, sometimes in the course of one week, I am both younger brother and older brother. And Jesus keeps inviting us to come back home, come back home to the Father's love. Father, we come to you and we thank you that though lost, though we are, you have so loved us that you sent your son Jesus for us so that we might not be lost, so that we might be found, so that we might be enveloped in your arms, so that we might be named sons and daughters of God, so that we might come back to ourselves as we come back home. We just pray, God, that even as we come to this table, that we would feel your word of affirmation over our lives, that we belong and that we are home in you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.